Hello, and welcome to the Bethesda Podcast feed. It's here you can find all of our recorded services. And for more information, you can visit us at gobethesda.com. We hope you enjoy. Or thereabouts, especially as we get into 2024. Uh, November 23rd is Thanksgiving, and Mission Recovery is having a Thanksgiving fellowship meal at 7 p.m. There's no church that Wednesday night. Huh? Five. Did I say seven? I'm, I'm just a reader. Sorry. Five. Mission, mission recovery. At uh, five o'clock on Thanksgiving evening. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have a great time, play some games, have some fun. So there I've made, uh, I think I've made the announcements. We have an immediate. And also you're going to be hearing more about zones. And we do have a zone leader meeting back here in uh, the youth building immediately following chap- chapel, church. And uh, I want to, I got some stuff to get to you, but I'm excited about zones. It's a way that's going to help us keep up with uh, the church. And as we grow, it just, it, it's, it's more and more difficult. We got some great people that are going to be help us, help us, help us, helping us with that. Let me say this also. Don't resist zones. Get in the zone, right? Get in the zone. Auto zone, right? Get in the zone. You can stay seated. Tonight I'm going to continue my series entitled End Time Events. This is part three. And um, I want to do some review and introduction. Let me say a prayer first. Father, thank you so much for the Holy Bible. I pray that you would help us to get insight and truth tonight. We give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to spend some time tying up some loose ends clarifying some things that I muddied up, just throwing a bunch of information out there for you. So I want to I cl- clarify some things. Last week, I stated that the Quran greatly borrows from the Christian Bible. As a matter of fact, I said it plagiarizes it. And yet, I said that the Quran is twisted and wicked. So why would I say that it plagiarizes the Bible and then turn around and say it's twisted and wicked? Well, the reason is because the Quran is not a facsimile or an exact copy. Rather, it's a perverted copy. It steals lines and then weaves what it's stolen together, then adds to it and then takes away from it, and it ends up telling an entirely different story altogether, one that is quite opposite of our Bible, the Christian Bible. Our Bible has good news. The Quran does not have good news. And Revelation 1.3 says that There's a blessing for those who read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy. But Revelation 22, 18, and 19 says, There's a curse on those who add or take away from the words of this prophecy. So to be clear, from the words of Revelation 22, the Quran is cursed. And Muhammad, with a curse on him, does not have peace upon him. So, I mean, I'm just 
Talking out loud, are you with me? So you're telling me that in 610 A.D., the angel Gabriel, 610 years after Jesus, the angel Gabriel showed up to an illiterate shepherd boy who was meditating in a cave, and voila, he could suddenly read and write, and he plagiarized the Bible and then got this direct revelation from Allah? And who is Allah? I'm not one of those preachers who thinks we all serve the same God. We're all going to the same place. All religions are different roads to the same place. I don't believe that. Back in the day when I was a hippie freak in Nashville, I kind of leaned that way. But I don't believe that anymore. The roots of Allah go back a thousand years plus way before Muhammad, a thousand years before Muhammad and beyond, to Hubal and Alila, not Halila, but Alila and a pagan moon god, and, and, and going way back into paganism, roots in paganism. Paganism is, is local tribes having local deities, and, and that's what you had here. So to be quite clear, if I, if I can be so bold, the Quran, the basis for Islam, is twisted, wicked. It's an abomination. It is a damnable deception that is sending billions of people to hell. I come against it in Jesus' name. I need to say this also. And um, in your Bible... I've said this before, but it's a key piece of information, I think, when we're dealing with Islam, especially, and end-time stuff in particular, and the Bible in general. I've said this before, that there's a doctrine, I call it the greater good doctrine, the greater good. The greater good doctrine of the Christian Bible says that God would do whatever was necessary to preserve and ensure the fulfillment of of the prophecy that said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent from Genesis 3.15, it's the proto-evangel, it's the first mention of the gospel in your Bible. That prophecy is speaking of Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the second Adam, the last Adam, the only hope for humanity to be restored, fallen humanity, to be restored. And he has a name. His name is Jesus. And God designed the solution to the fall, which was the birth of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The Lord designed it in such a way that the solution to the fall would be born of a woman, made under the law, Galatians said. Therefore, that woman had to be a woman who believed. A woman who had faith. Are you with me? And the devil would do everything he could to prevent that from happening. Why? Well, it's obvious because the fall of man was actually the ascent of the devil. Paul calls the devil the God of this world. The Lord didn't make him the God of this world. Adam bowed the knee 
Adam was the little g, God of this world. And he bowed the knee in the garden and gave that crown to an outlaw spirit that we know as the Satan or Lucifer, the devil. And he became the God of this world. If you'll remember in the temptation of Jesus, the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. And he said, all of these will I give you because it has been given to me and to whomever I choose to give it. Now, did the Lord give it to him? No, Adam did. already stated that. If this is not a real statement, a true statement, and Jesus doesn't know it, he's not a good Jesus because the devil's lying to him and he didn't pick up on it. His lying radar didn't go off, you know. And, and if, if he is, uh, if he's telling the truth, if he's just not, I mean, it, if Jesus knows he's lying, it's not a temptation. And the Bible says it was a temptation. Temptation means pressure. The pressure's on me. That's what he came to get, those kingdoms. But he would do it a legal way, and he wouldn't bow the knee to this outlaw spirit. The first Adam failed by doing that, and the last Adam it's like, no, I'm going to do it in a way you don't understand. And if the gods of this world, if the princes of this world would have understood, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. He was going to do it in a way the devil couldn't quite fathom. Because the devil's smart, but he doesn't have revelation. In other words, we know what we know from the Bible. Let there be. And there was. Uh, oh. Let there be revelation. We, we know scripture, not just from an intellectual perspective, but we have the added benefit of having the Holy Spirit reveal truth to us. That I believe in that. You can have head knowledge, but when it drops into your heart and the Lord reveals something to you, oh, that's life-changing right there. And, and the devil doesn't have that. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't, Open the devil's understanding that he might understand the word. But he opens our understanding. So the devil has intellectual understanding. Because he's a very intellectual, intelligent, super intelligent being. That's been around for a long, long time. Way smarter than us intellectually. At least in this fallen state. But we have the advantage of having the Holy Spirit. Show us what the word is saying to our spirit. Are you with me? And so... Uh, Here's something we need to understand. And this, this, this goes with Islam. So I, I'm not off track. I'm right on. The devil will fight to keep his power. He'll do everything he can to keep his power. He has been fighting the plans and purposes of God. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and here was the prophecy in Genesis 3. Because you're like kind of like, well, Jesus did the work, so why is there still a devil? Because there's a time frame. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but let me throw something else out here that will help you. It's kind of like this. Adam had a lease on this earth. The Lord owned it. The Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Another verse says that the heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he's given to the children of men. So which is it? Well, it's the Lord's. He owns it. But he gave it to Adam for a specified period of time. It was a lease. And it was an unconditional lease. 
I grew up in real estate. I was a realtor for 13 years. I understand a little bit about real estate. I know how leases work. You have all kind of conditional leases and stuff. This is an unconditional lease. Adam matures for 6,000 years. Whatever you want to do, whoever you invite in to stay, you want to sublet it out, it's yours to do with for 6,000 years. But understand, at the end of that period of time, I'm cleaning house. <laughs> I'm coming back in, and I'm taking over. And we're waiting on that day. That day is not here yet. Jesus did what was necessary to take the house back over, but we're occupying until he comes. And we go in Jesus' name, and we heal the sick, and we cast out demons, and we preach the gospel. Isn't that what we were told to do in the Great Commission? And he goes with us and confirms the word with signs following. So here's the deal. It's this earth lease, and the devil is still around. And so Jesus did what he did, and, and his work is finished. Like, there's nothing that the devil can do that undoes what Calvary has already accomplished. So, in other words, the devil's fate is sealed. He's going to hell like a bullet. I mean, it's done. It's just a matter of time, okay? But in the meantime, he's going to fight the plans and purposes of God because in Genesis 3, the scripture said that the offspring, the seed of of the woman, the offspring of Eve, and the offspring, so to speak, of the serpent would be at war from generation to generation to generation. When Jesus, who was the seed of the woman, looked at the religious Jews who were going to kill him, and he said, you're of your father the devil. That's a reference to the seed of the woman. That's a reference to the serpent that would be at war against the seed of the woman. He'll crush your head, but you'll strike his heel. This was a reference to that. Generation to generation, there's warfare. They were the spiritual offspring. In, day, in Noah's day, the faith that was required in the hearts of human beings to deliver the, the promised Messiah was in jeopardy of being lost. Uh, the, the, the devil had turned the hearts of humanity away from God and towards themselves. And let me just put it to you like this. When you are self-centered, you're in the devil's court. Selfishness is the devil's court. You're in the flesh. And when you're in the flesh, he's going to have his way with you. We used to sing that old song. Let him have his way with you. Speaking of the Lord. But when you're selfish and you're not focused on the Lord, the devil's going to take advantage of that. And instead of them looking to the Lord and offering a sacrifice and calling on the name of the Lord, like I'd been taught that them for generations, only Noah was still walking out his faith. The solution, the seed of the woman, was in jeopardy because the whole earth was under the sway of the enemy. And the whole earth could have influenced Noah or I would say Noah's family. We have no reference where Noah's kids are offering sacrifices. And Mrs. Noah. Follow me right here. Are you with me? Mrs. Noah's not offering sacrifices. And the kids, we don't really have the kids. Ham, Shem, Japheth, their wives. We don't have reference of them offering. But, but Noah is. 
and they're in fellowship with him. It's kind of like he's the pastor, he's the priest, and he's doing the thing, and they're, they're in fellowship with him. And so they all get in the ark. They help do the church work, build the ark, and they all get. But the whole world is against them. Nobody's building altars. That's, that's the altar system and calling on the name of the Lord. That's faith. That's the faith. Nobody's following the faith except Noah. And so the whole world could have influenced the family. And how many of you know the family has sway? The family could have influenced Noah. We ain't going to church, Dad. We're tired of building. I mean, Papa quit building the altars. Why are we still building altars? Papa quit offering up the lambs. I'm tired of it. Papa Lamech, great grandpa Methuselah. Like, we're tired of this. None of them were building off, only Noah. And Noah's like, shut up, kids. Get in the car. We're going to church, you know. And they keep building that ark. But it got down. It looks as if it says the whole earth, every imagination was only evil continually but Noah. So Noah's the last man standing. It's in jeopardy. And so here's the greater good doctrine. God would rather wipe out the entire world to keep the faith alive. Because it's only through faith that the solution of salvation for anybody would become available. Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. This was the plan of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This has been the plan of God since before everything was made. He's going to hang and die on a cross, so there has to be wood. I mean, let's just break it down. So for there to be wood, there has to be photosynthesis. There has to be soil. There has to be sun. Sun's got to be so many miles away and whatever kilometers away that you, you have to have you know uh water yet all the all the things that so the lamb is is everything started with the lamb when you get to heaven in the midst of the throne is the lamb of god jesus is the center of everything that was ever made what nothing made without him the bible says that nothing made that was made without the word he was the centerpiece of everything. Everything revolved around him. And for him to be born, it required God built in this frailty in the system. I got to have people. And you're like, that's crazy. I, I don't know if I believe that. He was born of a woman. Her name was Mary. Mary, Mary, check this out. Her parents were Joachim and Anna, she's from the tribe of Judah. There had to be a Jacob. There had to be an Isaac. There had to be an Abraham. There had to be a Shem. There had to be a Noah. Mary knew the word and believed it. You don't believe it? Go look at the Magnificat. Look at what she sang and said. My soul doth magnify the Lord. She's quoting scripture constantly. This little girl, she went to Shabbat school. You know what I'm saying? She went to Sunday school. She learned the word. And she knew the word. And she believed the word. And the angel's like, this is what's going to happen. She's like, how can this be? I've never known a man that's like this is impossible. 
The Holy Ghost will overshadow you. Be it unto me according to your word. She was a word-trained girl. And so she believed. And that was what was required for the birth of the Savior. And so all the collateral damage that took place to get to Mary. Let's talk about it for a moment. We've already looked at the flood. The flood wiped out, some historians say, 10 million people. Joshua comes into the promised land. And the Lord says, kill them all. That's genocide. Kill them all. Violence. It's crazy because a lot of times, especially after 9-11, people start criticizing the Quran, and they'll be like, such a violent book. I'm like, have you ever read your Bible? Like, that's such a violent book. Like, have you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua? Like, there's some violence in here. There's some violence in here. But it's the greater good doctrine. The greater good was required because the seed of the woman had to be born. Are you with me? Here's the problem. All that collateral damage, all that bad. It was not God's fault, per se. It was a consequence of war to ensure the greater good, the greatest good. In Islamic eschatology, study of the end, the end of all things, Islam has a Messiah too. Muslims are looking for their Messiah, the 12th Imam, according to the 12er Shia Muslims, or Muhammad al-Mahdi. He's supposed to bring about a global caliphate. This was once considered a fringe branch of Islam, but now the 12ers are in control. The Shia Ayatollahs in Iran, they're 12ers. They're looking for the 12th Imam. They're looking for the Mahdi. And Islam implements, rips off the greater good doctrine of the Christian Bible to justify the violence that they are imposing on the world today. They're stuck in the violence mode without the truth factor. So they're borrowing something that really took place, exploiting it, mimicking and mirroring, but it's not bringing about a solution. But they think that it is. I told you last week, there's an impositional religion called Islam. Whereas Christianity is a propositional religion. Here's proposed truth. You should believe this. The Islamic religion is become a Muslim. Or if you're not, then give us exorbitant taxes. Or if you're not, we're going to kill you. So in a twisted way, Islam is mimicking the Judeo-Christian Bible but in the violent stage, by any means necessary, and it's stuck there waiting on Messiah. And the good news is something they don't realize. Messiah already came. His name is Jesus. He's a God for all people. You go back and study Noah. You're going to see that the sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth were the foundation of all the people groups on the face of the earth. We used to sing red, yellow, black, and white. I've told you can't even sing that song anymore. It's incorrect. I was a kid, 57 years old. We sing that song. Trying to like all people everywhere. Jesus has the bloodline strongly represented of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now he's Semitic, but yes, he has Ham and Shem in his bloodline. And the truth is, there's 70 people groups in the Bible, biblically. I know there's like 120 or whatever it is, 
50, 70, 200, whatever it is now in the world, but according to anthropologists, but in the Bible, it's like 70 people groups. And, and the Lord sent out the 70, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Like, and he strongly represents, he's a savior for all people. All people. It's crazy how that some of these Islamic nations, these Muslim nations, they were Christian nations until Muhammad hit the scene in 600 and started killing everybody or taxing them to death or they converted. And now there are very, very small minorities that are Christian if they even admit it. And and it's fascinating too because that's, they're more connected to the original languages of the Bible. It's just, it's stunning to me. Here's the deal. It's awful quiet in this Presbyterian church. So, are you with me? Yeah. Isn't this exciting? So I just, I felt like I needed to say that because we don't always address the violence in our Bible. And then we talk about Islam being violent. And there's, there's the reason why. The warring phase is over. Messiah has come. He didn't send his church out and say, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out and preach the gospel. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. But whoever believes not shall be damned. So kill him. Doesn't say that. She says, shake the dust of your feet off. Go somebody else. Talk to them. Share the gospel. It's propositional truth. It's an opportunity. It's a possibility for you. If you'll just turn to Jesus and believe. And his arms are wide open and he's full of love. And he's got healing and forgiveness and redemption. He'll restore you. You'll get back what Adam lost. And one day you'll rule and reign with him on this planet. Okay. So let me cover something else right now. I told them in the uh, booth back there that I'm, I'm going to be doing some, like tying up some loose ends. I don't even know if I'll get to what I'm trying to get to uh, ultimately, but we'll just keep going here. I grew up hearing about the end times, and I always heard that the generation that saw Israel restored would not perish until Jesus returned. Matthew 24, 32 through 34. Listen to this. Now learn this parable, Jesus said, from the fig tree. And and the fig tree's always been symbolic of Israel. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. These are end-time verses, Matthew 24. Tell us what's the sign of your coming and all this kind of stuff. This this is talking about when Jesus is coming back. You'll know that summer is near. Season, a new season's dawning. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So learn this parable from the fig tree. When you see the fig tree, the old King James would say, bud. When it buds, the budding of the fig tree is seen as the restoration of Israel as a nation state. And I do believe that. I think it's idiomatic. I think that's presenting that. This Because there was not an Israel, you know that, for almost 2,000 years. There was no state of Israel. We got all these prophecies yet to be fulfilled about Israel, and there's no Israel. And so, you know, skeptics are like, well, that's crazy. There's no state of Israel. Till 1948, there was. All of a sudden, you have a nation state. You know, the old prophecy was, can a nation be born in a day? Yep. So in 1948, you have Israel that becomes a nation. And so the generation that sees this is not going to pass away until 
Jesus returns. And so biblically, a generation is about 40 years. And I think you can prove that throughout the Bible. So check it out. 1948, Israel becomes a nation. So when's Jesus going to come back? Do the math. 1988. Some of us, that rings a bell. It was a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. I have a copy of it in my library. I got one reason that proves he's not. He didn't. But it made sense, you know. The generation of the seed, we saw it. And, man, this guy did all the homework, brought out Rosh Hashanah. He's like September 7th or whatever it was, 1988, he's coming. I wasn't in church at the time. My people are, like, freaking out trying to get me in church. And I'm like, y'all are crazy, bunch of wacko religious nuts, you know. And when Jesus didn't come back, I'm like, I told you so. You know, like, <laughs> I was that guy. <laughs> I was. I was that guy. I was the worst nightmare. They're like, oh, Donovan. And why didn't you come back, Jesus? Just to prove Donovan wrong. Well, thank you, Lord, for not coming back because I'd gone that straight to hell like a bullet. But I mean, it made sense, you know, 88 reasons is like 40 years in here. So then what happens, you know, it's like, well, it's what well, it can be like 40 to 50, you know, so it's like 1988, 1998, you know, and, and there were other books. And then it was like, well, it couldn't be up to 80 years. And people were doing all kind of math and, and gymnastics. And, uh, you know, theologically speaking and numerically speaking. Uh, check this out. Here's, here's, I think, the solution to that. Uh, the, this idea of a generation, this generation, the generation, is idiomatic. It depicts something other than a time span. Let me give you an example. Matthew 3 and 7, John the Baptist said, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? The word brood in the New King James Version is generation in the Greek, and it is in the King James as well. Generation in the Greek. A brood is from, it means from the same family. And so the family of vipers, the generation of vipers. Wait a second, that rings a bell. The seed of the woman's offspring will be at war with the seed, the offspring of the serpent. Oh. All right. Everything points back to that. Check this out. Matthew 12, 34. Jesus said, brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Same thing. Generation of vipers. So, as usual, everything in the Bible goes back to Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Talking to the snake. He will bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So, Jesus and John are referring to these religious Jews, the ones who would end up killing Jesus and... Genesis 3 said they would bruise his heel and he would crush the, the serpent's head. So there's this perpetual warfare that's been going on from Genesis 3 until now. And I believe Jesus was saying, Matthew 24, when you see Israel reconstituted, the budding of the fig tree, understand the fight's not going to stop. 
the generation that sees this, there's going to be warfare that continues until all these things are fulfilled. The devil's thrown into the bottomless pit. We got a millennial reign of Christ and then a new heaven and a new earth. Are you with me? The next verse, you know, after that, this generation will not pass till all these things. Be, the very next verse says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not. So it's linking it to the eternal. So even though we saw Israel become a nation state, there's going to be a fight all the way. Like, we want the fight to be over, don't we? I do. I don't want to fight anymore. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. But I don't want to fight no more. I ain't got a choice. We have to. As long as we have breath, we got a fight ahead of us. If you're going to live for God, it's going to be a fight. Can I say it like that? It ain't something you're going to passively do. You've got you to get up in the devil's face. You've got to take what belongs to you. Some people look at taking the promises that belong to you as being like you're arrogant. How can you say that? You're just being arrogant. No, I'm taking him at his word. I see that as humility. To me, arrogance is saying, whatever, Lord. That's an affront to the cross. The cross bought and paid for so much that belongs to us. you got to fight for that. you got to renew your mind, present your body. you got to pray. you got to fast. There's some things you got to see God about. Uh, so, <clears throat> all right. So on to the subject of the Antichrist. I told you, we'd get there. So I'll introduce this. The Antichrist, who's also known as the beast in Revelation 13, is going to cause the whole world to come against Israel in a hostile way, surround Israel. My son sent me a news clip. He was in his car driving, and his XM radio had a news clip, and it said, Israel is surrounded, being attacked from the north, being attacked from the south, being attacked from the west, Mediterranean's on the east. And, and, and so he rewound, because you rewind your XM, he like rewound a couple times, turned his phone, recorded it, videoed it, sent it to me. And, it, and it, all it said was, Israel is surrounded from the north, from the south, from the west. Well, the Antichrist is going to cause the whole world to come against Israel, surround it, come against it. And that will culminate with the Battle of Armageddon, which is known as the Gog and the Magog War of Ezekiel 38-39. Uh, I brought this out a few weeks ago. Before that war takes place, there has to be another war that requires a peace treaty to be signed. And that peace treaty will be brokered by the Antichrist. So could this be that war? It could be. That's why I titled that, The War Required for the Rise of the Antichrist. Go back and listen to the podcast. The signing of this peace treaty, when the Antichrist uh, appears and there's this war, and this could be the war. Let me remind you, this war that's happening right now in Israel. It could be the war. And somebody negotiates a peace treaty, that could be the Antichrist. Because there has to be peace made. And then three and a half years from the signing of that peace agreement, he's going to break it. And he's going to cause the whole world to come against Israel. And that's going to culminate with the Armageddon battle and the Gog-Magog war. And so the... Wheels of prophecy start moving when that peace treaty is signed. The ticking of the clock, the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, seven years of tribulation, three and a half years into it is when he breaks it and all hell breaks loose, and the day of the Lord takes place. That's going to take place at that Armageddon scene, the day of the Lord. The Antichrist, let's talk about him. Where is he coming from? Let's start by getting our timing correct. 
Oh boy, here we go. Speaking of timing, 38 minutes, I'm, I'm trying to wrap it up here. The outline for the book of Revelation is found in the first chapter, verse 19. gives us a timetable. John's told to write down, one, things he had seen, which was the risen Jesus in all his splendor and majesty, hair like wool, you know, feet like brass. He wrote about it. He saw the Lord. He described him, told us uh, how he looked and whatnot. And then he's told to write about, number two, things which are. He did that in, verse, in chapters 2 and 3 in regards to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Their pros and their cons. The Lord would say, you're doing this right, you're doing this wrong. And what they represent. And then he was told to write down, number three, things which will be. And that begins in chapter 4. And John's caught up, the Bible says, to a heavenly realm. And in that heavenly realm, he sees the candlestick in heaven. Candlesticks representative of the church, the menorah. And it signifies the church. And he saw the church in heaven. And so from chapter 4 on, I believe we're dealing with things that take place after the rapture of the church. So the seals and the trumpets and the bowls of judgment, they're not released until after the church is raptured. And so I'm running out of time, but I, I, I believe that the church is not ordained to wrath. And the day of the Lord and that battle of Armageddon, you're going to see the wrath of God poured out on this world. The church is not supposed to be part of that. If you're wondering, I'm pre-trib. I'm so pre-trib I don't eat post-toasties, right? That's an old cereal, you know, for you, the children in the room. I, I believe that the Lord's coming back before the tribulation. And I, I'll, I'll tease you with this right now. Here's a very important detail when it comes to the end time timeline. The Antichrist will be revealed after the rapture of the church, but before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which ends with the battle of Armageddon. 2 Thessalonians 2. Why don't you stand with me? 2 Thessalonians 2. And you are like, what in the world do we sing with that? 2 Thessalonians 2. Listen to the first two verses. There you go. Now, therefore, uh, now, brethren, concerning the, listen to this, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That's two different things. The rapture is not the Lord coming back to the earth. It's the Lord coming back. In the clouds. And we're caught up. To meet him. In the air. We used to sing that song. There's going to be. A meeting in the air. In that sweet sweet by and by. Anybody know that? He doesn't come back to the earth. We're caught up to meet him. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. The rapture is our gathering together to Him. And then when He comes back, and there's verses, oh, many other verses in the Bible. You've seen those verses that talk about the Lord comes back and the saints come with Him? It's because we were in heaven together. And then we come back to the earth with Him. Two different things.
in this passage in Thessalonians. And so I want to deal with that. I guess we'll get into it next time concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering to him. And here's, here's the bottom line. For the church, we got to get on the first train out of here. When that trumpet sounds, you know what the rapture is? I heard one man put it like this. It's a hearing test. Are you going to hear? And this is really good. The, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God shall sound. The same Holy Ghost that moves on you, and you're learning to respond to that here in this training ground called earth, our walk with God. And I've, I've told you before, man, I, I, uh, there was a time I didn't feel the presence of God. I, I, I had written it off, but when I hungered and thirsted for that feeling I had, you know, when I was in a backslidden state, I, I wanted to go, like, I want the peace I had back when I was a kid and I wasn't jaded. And I finally broke into the presence of the Lord by the grace of God. When I felt that and I experienced that, I tried to, like, I didn't know how to do it, but I tried to go all in. I'm like, I don't want to lose this, God. Like, I don't want to, I'm chasing it. Like, I was feeling after the Lord. And I, I tried not to take that for granted. If I feel His presence, I, I want to yield to that. To me, that's what the rapture is going to be like. You feel the, pres the, the presence. You feel the quickening. And, and as you've done here, you need to do it then and yield to it. <laughs> here I am, Lord. Even so come quickly is the prayer of the New Testament believer. The Lord wants to quicken us. Dead in Christ will be raised first, then afterwards we which are alive and remain. We'll talk about it. I challenge you between now and next Wednesday, go read 1 Thessalonians, the whole book. It's short. And then read 2 Thessalonians. Because he's talking about the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians, and he's talking about the coming of the Lord. He's talking about the gathering together, the rapture in 1 Thessalonians, and the return of Christ to this earth in 2 Thessalonians as well as the catching away. The perusia is the Greek. God's going to catch us away. I know it's crazy far-fetched, but the whole gospel message is kind of far-fetched anyway, right? It's one that you believe by faith. Faith comes. Revelation comes. And so if you're going, if you're going, if you're going to dive in, you might as well eat the whole enchilada, right? You might as well eat the whole thing. That's what the, the, the Lord told Zechariah, like, eat that roll, boy. You know, it's an enchilada. Eat the whole enchilada, boy. Eat the whole thing. God has a place that he wants to take us. And one day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and, of, and his Christ. And of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And we will forever be with the Lord. Would you lift your hands to him right now? The Bible says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, I thank you for the comfort that comes from the promise that we have that life doesn't end in an empty, cold grave. And life is not about cold, dead, dry religion, but it's about a vibrant relationship that is not over just when our breath ceases. But Lord, we are with you immediately when our physical body dies. But God, you're going to raise our physical body back up. And God, you're going to 
put us back together and we're going to reign and rule with you and forever be with you and sing your praises and sing about the glory of God and the Lamb of God and the price that you paid. Would you lift your hands to him? Just praise him right now. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in my own life and what you're going to do, Lord, in the life to come, God. Thank you for joining us. And for more information, you can visit us at GoBethesda.com. You can also visit us in person at 15050 Daigle Road, Prairieville, Louisiana. Services are at 10 a.m. Sunday and 7 p.m. on Wednesday.